with, with his hair, right? It was just, it was so much fun. It made the night worth it for that. But I don't see Uncle Si here. Uncle Si's not here. That was the runner-up in my mind. I really appreciated that. But several, several great costumes and a lot of fun uh, for us. And listen, guys, I think we had, uh, what was it, like almost close to 200 people that were able to come through uh, and, and, uh, and celebrate this with us. And like Josh mentioned before, these are the pillars that we focus on at King's Church. We want people to experience God, find community, and live on purpose. Those are the things that drive us in everything we do. And how something like this plays into that is that we were able to kind of open up our community. We were able to live on purpose, to do something, to live on purpose and invite people into to something that we do. And we hope that one day something might happen in their lives and they might say to each, maybe a couple says to each other in one evening, they go, listen, something's going wrong. We need to go to church. Why don't we go to that one we went to the fall festival at three years in a row or what have you. We, those people were nice people or whatever. We don't know how it's going to affect uh, the people around us, but we do it to display our love for each other and our love for them. Isn't that what Jesus says? They will know you by your love for one another, and they will know you by that. But our ultimate goal for anyone that we come in contact with, and my ultimate goal for you this morning, is that you would be able to experience the true and living God. And that's actually what we're talking about this morning. What is that? What is worship? How should we worship? What is, what is that look like? That's the ultimate goal for King's Church is for people to experience God in a life-transforming way. How do we do that? What does that look like? And that's what we'll be talking about this morning. Last week we looked at this passage and, and I didn't get a chance to really dive into verses 19 through 24, which is a beautiful uh, passage where Jesus talks to us about the nature of worship and the actual how. How do we, or how should we, worship uh, God? So let me give you a bit of the context before we jump into this. Jesus is exhausted. His ministry started, and he has been, he's been on the road. He's been traveling. He's been speaking. There's been constant interaction. He's had to think on his feet time and time again. And in his humanity, Jesus was God. That's the point of this book, is to explain to us and to convince us in our heart of hearts that Jesus is, in fact, God. And also that he is human. And we get a picture of his humanity in this passage because he's exhausted. His disciples go in to the town to buy food. And he's in this place called Samaria, which Jews would never go. And we'll talk a little bit about why they won't go there in a minute. And he engages this woman. Jews would never do that. Ask to drink out of her cup. She was thought of as unclean. Josh mentioned that, some of those laws earlier. Thought of as unclean. They would have never, no one would ever do that. And Jesus engages her, and he offers her living water. He says, that water is going to dry up, but I want to offer you living water that bubbles up from inside into eternity. He's offering her salvation that he came to bring. And then he calls her to repent of her sexual sin. And we're going to pick up on the next part of the conversation. She changes the subject on it, as is often done when we're in the middle of an awkward conversation. And they engage in this subject of worship. And we're going to pick it up today, because this is a huge subject for us to broach. 
what is the worship of God and how do we do it? And, and as we've been talking about so far this morning, today is the 504th anniversary of the Reformation when Martin Luther not, nailed the 95 Theses uh, to the wall of the church in Wittenberg. And this led to a, a, a revolution or a reformation, as it was called, which was a complete split with the Roman Catholic Church. And the reason why Martin Luther didn't intend that his goal was to reform the church, he didn't intend to completely break away, but that's what happened because the Roman Catholic Church was refusing to yield on anything. Okay? Because what they had happened to the church is that they had completely polluted the gospel of Jesus Christ completely and totally polluted the gospel of Jesus Christ and were teaching a doctrine, teaching a belief that would not lead to salvation. And so Martin Luther brings this up. But in addition to that, the pollution of the gospel itself, salvation through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, they had also polluted the worship of God. And when people gathered together, they didn't worship God how he asked people to worship. They added sacraments. The Bible says there's two. They just added them. They, instead of praying directly through to Jesus Christ, which his blood makes available to us, they taught that they needed to pray through Mary or other saints or angels. Instead of confessing sins to our high priest, they said they needed to confess sins to a man. They, when they practiced the Lord's Supper, they, they practiced something called transubstantiation, which is still in practice today, where the, 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 the body and the bread that we use, they believe, literally turns into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ to be sacrificed all over again, week by week by week by week by week. They taught that at your baptism, you're infused like a shot with grace, and that it's your responsibility to live out that salvation for the rest of your life. The worship and the gospel had been completely polluted, and the church at that time had ceased to become the church, and it had turned into man-made religion or a cult. And unfortunately, Roman Catholicism has never repented of that, and their worship remains false to this day, not by my standard, by God's standard. And so that was the, the situation that gave birth five, over 500 years ago to the Reformation. Interestingly, there's a similar situation that Jesus is dealing with in this passage, where the Samaritans had a form of worship that was in the ballpark, but false. That passage we looked at a little while ago in Leviticus chapter 10 with Nadab, they, they were probably in the ballpark. It was fire. I love the King James Version translation of that passage. It was just strange fire. It was fire that God had not commanded. It was false worship. They had, for the Samaritans, they had the right God, but the wrong worship. And God hates that. It's not a delight to him. Right God, wrong worship, God hates that. And Jesus, in the middle of this passage, is leading her to worship the true God in the right way. You see, it matters, friends, how you worship God. It matters. There was this woman, Luther, and the Reformation, and it's also important to us today. 
Let's jump in on this conversation that Jesus is having with this woman in John chapter 4. Please give your attention to God's word. I'll begin reading in verse 19. John chapter 4, and I'll pick up in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that a place where we must worship, where the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. God in heaven, as we worship you over your word this morning, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together as we consider your word would be pleasing in your sight. Help me, help us, as we worship you over your word. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Here's a big idea this morning. God calls us to worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what we're going to talk about what that means this morning. It's the whole point of what we're doing together. God calls us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And if we will do that, we will profoundly experience and glorify God. If we will worship God in spirit and in truth, we will profoundly experience individually, corporately, together, God, and then the goal of our existence is to bring Him praise, glory, and honor. That's what He wants. And worshiping in spirit and in truth will do that. You see, God has not been vague about what worship is and how to do it. He's painstakingly written it down for us, and we have a beautiful passage in here where we can look at that, and there are consequences, as we saw in our scripture lesson this morning, about for false worship. And there's also, and hear this, there's also great blessing. There's great blessing that we get to know and love God in a true and profound way through right worship, the worship of God in spirit and in truth. And I think this is a great thing for us to talk about because I think in our day, uh, perhaps in every day, but I'm sure in our day, I think there's some confusion and ignorance about the subject of what and how when it comes to worship. So this is a great opportunity for us to talk about that. And we also, just as in every century of that man has existed, we have false worship masquerading around as true. And it is our job, if you're going to claim the name of Christ, or if you're here and you're investigating Christ, and you're wanting to know more about what it means to worship God, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to worship, know what you're in for. What is worship? And then oftentimes there's the mistake that we make that Jesus corrects in this passage of substituting the ritual for the relational and spirit and in truth. You'll be happy to know after enduring two six-point sermons that we only have three today, okay? Only have three today, all right? Three questions that we're going to ask. What is worship? How did Jesus change worship? And how should we worship? What is worship? How did Jesus change worship? And how should we worship? First, and that we're going to look at, 
What is worship? Again, Jesus is engaging this woman to save her soul. He loves her enough to to walk past all the man-made barriers that were set up. Jesus didn't sin in talking to this woman. There were man-made barriers that had been set up to keep the Samaritans and Jews apart, but Jesus didn't violate any of the law of God when he walked up to her and said and engaged her in order to give her the gospel and save her soul. So Jesus addresses her and deals specifically with her sexual sin. It's interesting, very frequently when Jesus addresses people and those people have an interest in him, he deals with the sin that is plaguing their lives the most. Now listen, we we all sin against God in, in a variety of ways. It's not that this is the only department in which she had sin, but Jesus will oftentimes stick his finger right in the biggest barrier between you and God. He did it in a passage we looked at a few weeks ago with a man that we typically call the rich young ruler. His barrier wasn't sexual sin, it was greed or money, or security in his possessions. Whatever that form took in his heart, Jesus could see it, and looked right into him and said, give up your money. He, in this woman, for this woman, it was her sexual sin. And he looks right in it because he knew that he, she was enslaved to that, and he wanted to free her from that, the same way he wanted to free him. And so he engages, and she, like we all do, changed the subject and, and talked about the religious controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans, which we'll get into in just a minute. It's interesting how often that happens to us, how often we do it. I know I've done it, changed the subject before. I was talking with someone recently about uh, who, was, who was a friend of mine, and, and I was concerned for him because he was a believer, and I was concerned because of his kids. He was traveling all the time doing sports, and, and they were never, ever, ever in, in worship. And so I just was expressing my concern, saying, Listen, bud, I'm concerned about you, and I'm concerned about your kids. You need worship. They need worship. And he changed the subject. I understand. It's an awkward subject. That's it for Ty. He changed the subject, right? Does that ever happen to you? I hope so, and here's why. Because I hope we love each other, and you love other people enough, like Jesus loved this woman, to engage the barrier that's keeping them from Jesus Christ. Jesus does that. Here in this passage, engages her in this conversation. But she brings up the worship conversation, or the controversy rather, between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so let's talk about that as we're talking about this subject of what is worship. Just brief history of the relationship. I'm just going to give you a drive-by. If you want to look at more detail in terms of how this came about, look at the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. But what happened is the nation of Israel was one nation and then split into two kingdoms. And there was a lot of reasons for that, which you can read about. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. We in the south know a little bit about north-south stuff, right? Yeah. So it was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, the capital was Samaria. And in 722, um, they, they were conquered and destroyed and captured and sent into exile by the Assyrians. Okay? And then what happened is the only people who were left were poor people. That was the only people left. All the people with education and and, and prestige or whatever were taken away. And so the only people that were left were poor people. And what happened is they started intermarrying, which was against God's word, with other foreign nations, and they started using their worship, and they created a hybrid. Pagan worship and godly worship. They created a hybrid. So they were half-breeds, and they had false worship. You tracking with me? Okay? That was the Samaritans. They were half-breeds, and they had false worship. And so naturally, they didn't, Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. They were kind of like distant cousins, but things got really messed up. Okay? 
And so they, they really hated each other, okay? And so we talked a lot about that last week. We're not going to dive into that this week. Let's talk about the controversy, the, the worship controversy that she brings up, okay? She brings up, y'all worship on this mountain, we worship on this mountain. So what's going on there? All right. So in 586, 722, Northern Kingdom Falls, 586, Southern Kingdom Falls, okay? Babylon this time. Same thing happens. Uh, takes all the best and brightest away, and then eventually they come back. And when they come back, they come back specifically to set up the temple. And that's very important. I'll get to that in just a minute. They come specifically back to set up the temple. And the Samaritans want to help out. And the Jews wisely said no. There was a lot of mixed motives there, and their worship wasn't pure. That's another conversation. But the Jews said no, and so the Samaritans said, fine, we'll build our own temple on Mount Gerizim. And they did. And actually, there's a group of Samaritans that still worship on that mountain to this day. But in 130 B.C., their temple was destroyed on Mount Gerizim. Okay? So that's the background of this controversy. Samaritans said, fine, we can't help you with your temple. We'll build our own temple and we'll worship God there. And then the Jews, the Jews said, no, we're building this temple where God said to build the temple. Okay? And we'll get into that in just a minute. So if you look at verse 19, that's what's going on. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now when she says our fathers worshipped on this mountain, in Genesis 12 and 33, you'll see that Abraham and Jacob built altars on Mount Gerizim. Okay? So the Samaritans and the Jews both traced their lineage back to Abraham and Jacob. All right? So that's the controversy. That's, that's what's going on. Where do we worship? And how do we worship? And it's a really good jump-off point for us this morning to talk about what is worship. What is worship? Because in the midst of their conversation, they're making a lot of assumptions about a common understanding of worship that they have that I'm not sure we have today. So let's talk about it. Uh, it's really kind of cool, providentially, this week in our officers training, we're talking about worship, right? So it's neat. We actually have, in the ARP, a directory of public worship, which is a guideline for worship. And the history of this document dates all the way back to Luther and the Reformation and, and his folks, uh, and talking about how the gospel and worship um, was recovered. But I want to talk about today worship in a specific sense. And when I mean that, I mean as we corporately gather together and worship God in spirit and in truth, or when you privately or as a family worship. It is an act. Broadly speaking, worship is oftentimes discussed as, as the lifestyle of worship, if you will. Another way to say that would be that there are, we can glorify God by being a great carpenter. We can glorify God and He's happy in the way we treat each other in families. We can glorify God in a variety of ways that shows our heart really does worship Him and serve Him. But 90% of the time, if not more, when the Bible refers to worship, it's referring to kind of what we're doing right now. Okay? Not this lifestyle kind of worship thing. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21, we read this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That's that broad sense of worship. You see what I'm saying? And then we also read in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, Romans 12, 1, 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies, your whole lives, in other words, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So there is an aspect of just living normal life that shows about the God we worship. But this morning, we're not talking about that. We're talking specifically about what is worship. What do we do when we gather together? What should we be doing privately or in a family? Okay? And specifically, what do we do here? What does that mean when we worship together? There's a connection between the broad and the specific terms of worship. There are several times in the Bible, I'm not going to go through them, where God says, I hate your worship. You're doing the right things, but I hate it because you're not doing the rest of my law. You're, you, you're, by the way you're living your life, you're showing that you can't, that you are far from me. So yeah, you're coming and bringing the offerings before me. You may be singing the songs and doing that, but I can tell your heart, I, hey, I hate it, right? So there is a connection between the broad and the specific sense of worship. Tracking with me? But we're going to talk about specific today. All right, let's talk about worship on a word level. What do the Greek and Hebrew words mean when we talk about worship? Okay, the Hebrew word is um, shakah. It means to bow down, to show homage, uh, adoration. So it literally means to get down on your knees or face down on the floor and just lie down. That's what the root word means. And very often you'll actually see in the Bible people doing that, physically getting on the ground. They'll say things like, he worshipped. He worshipped. And he's referring to the fact that he got on the ground or she got on the ground. Okay, And then the Greek word, proskuneo, means, pros means towards, and kuneo, the root of that, is to kiss. And it means, same thing, to kiss the ground. Similarly, you'd see a king coming into town, and, and then there would be people who would come up to him and kiss his feet. A woman does that to Jesus, as a matter of fact. It's this idea of honor and worthiness as we bend down. That's the root idea behind worship. In fact, the English word that we, that we use for worship comes from worth-ship. In other words, what worship is, is giving God what he's worth. Bowing down to him and showing him that honor. What we learn from these definitions of the word worship is the posture of our hearts that should be present in worship. That worship is, is seeing and being, being affected by what God is worth, and then in response to Him, giving Him all that we are because of what He's worth. Worship, this would be a good definition to write down if you're taking notes. Worship is the means of ascribing ultimate value to God. Worship is the means of ascribing ultimate value to God. That worship is what we were created for and it's our highest purpose and it's our greatest need. What we were created for, our highest purpose and our greatest need. Brief history about worship. Very important to understanding this passage. God created man. In Genesis 1 and 2, beginning of 3, what did worship look like? It would be a great conversation to talk about at community groups today. What did worship look like before sin? You know what it looked like? Perfect communion. Perfect communion with the Father. And then sin came in, and because of the holiness of God, the communion was severed. And the whole history of the Bible is God working his way back to his people so that he can be in communion with them. 
But sin created a barrier, a separation. It closed the communion. And when we think about worship, we need to think about worship in communal terms, in relational terms, and we are coming back to God in relationship. And this is how it happened in the, in the history of the Bible. Noah made sacrifices in Genesis chapter 8. Noah made an altar and sacrificed animals. Why? Why? Because there was a barrier. The communion had been broken, and there needed to be blood to get into the communion of God. Abraham made sacrifices, and then God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And it builds in a little more about what worship is. The first four deal with how to worship God. Don't worship any other God. Worship God alone. This is the first commandment is who we worship. No other God. And the second commandment is how. Did you hear that? It's really important. First commandment is who. Second commandment is how. Okay? How do we worship? No idols. No idols. Worship God the right way. Number three, don't take the, Lord's, the name of the God in vain. Honor the Lord's name in worship of Him. And then number four, honor the Sabbath day, a day of rest and worship. And then Moses summarizes in Deuteronomy chapter 6 the posture of our heart as we worship God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is what's behind worship in your heart. But what did the how look like? Let's talk about that for a minute. What did the how look like? In addition to the Ten Commandments, God gave instructions about creating a tabernacle, creating a place. This is really important for this passage. He created a place. It was a tent. And there was a holy of holies. There was a special space, 30 feet by 30 feet, in the tent. And inside of it was the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the presence of the Lord dwelt. You see, the presence of God, you really got to get this if you're going to understand this passage. The presence of God was tied to a specific location. And when the presence of God moved, the tabernacle moved. And then what happened when King David came and then Solomon came is that became a permanent place. And so God gave them the promised land that He had promised and covenanted to them. And when they got into the land, they built a permanent place where God's dwelt. And so that's the genesis of the controversy. This is the place in Jerusalem. This is the place on Mount Gerizim. The reality is, at this point, God's presence didn't dwell on Mount Gerizim. It was in Jerusalem, at the temple. Right worship, according to God's word, at this time, didn't happen on Mount Gerizim. It happened at the temple, where the presence of God was. So let's, let's look at that. All right, let's, let's summarize this together. Let's, let's summarize this point. The goal was always communion with God. The posture of the heart was bowing down, complete adoration. But sacrifice was necessary to come to God in a specific location. Now, we have the book of Psalms. They sang. They prayed the Psalms. When they gathered together, they sang songs. They heard the word. We see that in Ezra. And they, and they, uh, and they, and they prayed together in a very similar way that we do. But what was the difference? Two big differences. Specific location, sacrifice. All right? So that's what worship is. Now let's talk about, let's talk about the, next, the next point, number two. How did Jesus change worship? 
Again, the idea we're thinking about today is God calls us to worship Him in spirit and truth. And if we do that, we will experience God and glorify Him profoundly. How did Jesus change worship? What Jesus changed through His life and death was the need for the worship of God to be confined to a specific location. Do you hear me? What Jesus changed, and specifically in this passage, was the need for the worship of God to be confined to a specific location. Look at verse 21. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You see, ever since the book of Exodus, the worship of God has been tied to a very specific location. The tabernacle, and then later, the temple. And Jesus here is saying, the temple in Jerusalem will no longer be necessary and anyone will have access to the presence of God anywhere. In other words, the controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans is about to no longer be valid. The presence of God and the worship of God was tied to a physical location. And when you back up and think about it, even this is mind-blowing. The fact that God came down to be with His people should blow your mind. No other religion has that claim. To come down and be with his people, and God is heightening that here. Jesus says, a time is coming and now is. Do you hear that? Even even in this very moment that we're looking at, this was starting to go away. What's Jesus talking about? Well, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we looked at this several weeks ago, well, months ago now. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word, that Greek word, made His dwelling among us, means tabernacled. Did you see it? Where did God dwell for centuries? In a tent, in a tabernacle. That's the Word. Jesus came and his presence was now with it. That, that, that it, time is coming and now is here. Worship is no longer about to be tied to a specific location. And then also Jesus changed the need for sacrifice in worship. For, to bring a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. Now we don't get to see that in this passage. Okay? He hints at it but we don't get to see that fully worked out in this passage. But I'm going to spell it out for you briefly. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the high priest would have to bring blood to pay for sins. Blood is the symbol of life. He'd have to bring blood. First he'd have to bring blood for his own sin. Then he could bring blood for the entire nation of Israel. Sin makes it impossible to be in the presence of the holy God. And without blood, you would die in the presence of God. And the blood there was to temporarily pay for your sin, but you could not worship without blood. Jesus' death on the cross was the sacrifice the blood needed to end all sacrifices. His pure, perfect life and His divine God blood could cover the sin of true worshipers once and for all. In fact, the book of Hebrews says that. Chapter 10, verse 10, We have been made holy, those who place their faith in Christ, through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's why this morning you didn't have to bring a goat into worship with you. Okay? All right? Um, is because 
You didn't need any. You don't need the blood. You need to be connected to the blood that's already been spilt in Jesus Christ. And that's where faith and repentance come in. Okay? The temple architecture, again, there was this holy of holies, this 30 by 30 uh, room, and in it was the Ark of the, uh, Ark of the Covenant. And there was a veil that separated the people. There was a separation. Remember, sin causes separation. There's a separation. And when Jesus died, when he breathed out his last breath, that veil, which, was, which historians believe was four inches thick, was ripped in two from top to bottom. In other words, the barrier's no longer there. Come in freely. Barrier's no longer there. So the sacrifice, the blood needed to, to worship God in the specific location, that's what Jesus changed about worship. If you're connected to him... The Bible says that God dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Now, you don't have to go to to the temple mount and offer sacrifices because there was a once and for all sacrifice. You don't have to travel to Jerusalem. God has traveled to you when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and God lives in you right now. That's what Jesus changed about worship. Final point. How should we worship God? God calls us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And if we do that, we will profoundly experience and glorify God. How? Now, notice what Jesus didn't change was the goal of worship. He didn't change that. It's still the same. The goal of worship is still communion with God. It's still to experience God. Jesus heightened that. He heightened that ability. Look what He says in verse 22. You you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Do you see that? There's a a communion, there's a knowledge, there's a walking with that incorporates worship. Worship is about knowing God. You know, when you get to know someone, you need to know what they like if you're going to have a good relationship, right? Right? Whenever you're making friends, don't you oftentimes form bonds over common interests? And you know what they like, and maybe you, you see something. Uh, Laura Christie knows which kind of candy I like. So every now and then I'll see some candy on my desk, because she knows what I like. You know, when, you, when you're dating somebody, and you're learning about them, and, and you, you find out what they like, and you want to do special things for them. You know, maybe you, you, you remember when Love Languages, that book came out, and it was a big deal? You're learning about them. They tell you how they like to be loved, And then you make the effort to love them that way. That's what God's doing with worship. He's saying, this is how you love me. This is how you worship me. And Jesus tells us, verse 23, Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. They are the kind of worship the worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. God has a way that he wants to be worshipped, and it's not based on your opinion. It's based on what he has said. God has revealed to us how he wants to be worshipped. And he says it, in spirit and in truth. 
up to this point, he's saying Jesus is the physical temple. Jesus is doing away with that through his death and resurrection. Sacrifice, again. And faith and repentance take care of that, connect us to it. We good? So what does it mean to worship God in spirit? What does that mean? Okay, what does it mean? It means to worship God, number one, according to his nature. Do you see what he says there at the beginning? God is spirit. The children's catechism says God is a spirit and he does not have a body like man. God is spirit. Okay? In other words, he's living. He's not dead. God wants worship that is alive. God is not an object. He is a person. That's why we don't worship him with idols. We don't use impersonal means. We use personal means to worship God. Okay? That's one of the reasons why we do that. And God wants us to worship not simply physically, but to engage the inner man. Okay? Also implied in this verse is that the fact that we need the Holy Spirit's help to worship. Philippians 3.3 we read, We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glorify Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The Holy Spirit for sure enlightens our eyes and helps us to, to worship God. We saw that in John chapter 3 where Jesus says you must be born again. So we need the Holy Spirit to help us worship. But the primary thing that Jesus is talking about here, stay with me, is a heart that is completely engaged in the worship of God. In other words, this is not simply an empty ritual. What Jesus is combating over and over and over again in the New Testament is that the Pharisees and the other religious leaders and the scribes had turned worship simply into a checklist, simply a means of external things. Do this, do this, do this. And they added more external things to make themselves feel better about themselves. Just check the box. That's what worship is. And Jesus here is saying that is not what worship is. We, your heart should be prostrate and bowed down in adoration for God. Your mind and heart should be overwhelmed by the glory of God when you're in His presence. Worship is being seeing God for what He's worth and being totally overwhelmed by that. And worshiping Him emotionally with all that you have inside of you. Jesus summarizes the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Your worship should be emotional, Presbyterians. Right? Your worship should be emotional in that. Now, what God doesn't do is spell out what that means. We're all wired a little differently. For some people, that, that might form an expression that looks one way, and it might form an expression that looks another way, whatever. I don't think that's what God cares about. God wants your heart. Worship should be, emo you should be emotionally engaged. Worship God in spirit, excuse me, in spirit and in truth. And right now we're talking about that spirit. If you're going through the motions, if you're showing up, if you're not engaged, if you're half paying attention to what I'm saying right now, if you're mumbling the songs, you don't get it. You don't see the glory of God if you're just going through the motions. Worship God with all that you are and all of your heart on the inside. That's what it means to worship God in spirit. And the Holy Spirit helps you to do that. What does it mean to worship God in truth? We are to worship God according to the truth of what He has revealed. According to the truth of what He has revealed. Okay? Jesus is telling this woman that God does not accept their worship. 
because it's not according to the truth. We don't accept your worship. You've created this hybrid of paganism and Christianity. We don't, God doesn't accept that. It's not according to the truth. God does not accept Roman Catholic worship. God does not accept Jehovah's Witness worship. God does not accept Muslim worship. Why? Very simple. Not according to the truth. It's not according to what has been revealed in the Word of God. We need to worship God the way He has revealed us to worship Him. So let's ask that question. How has God revealed in His Word to worship Him? And the way there's a principle that we use to govern that, it's called the regulative principle. We'll be talking about that on Tuesday night with my officers, right? The regulative principle, very simple, it goes like this. The regulative principle of worship states that the corporate worship of God is to be founded upon the specific directions of Scripture. In other words, we worship God the way He told us to in, worship, in the Bible. And we don't add anything that's not in the Bible. Okay? It's, it's pretty simple. So, why do we sing? Every time you come to King's Church, you sing. Why? Because there's lots of singing. We have a song, whole song book in the Bible called the Psalms. Every time you come to worship at King's Church, we pray. Why do we do that? Again, Psalms and others worship in the Bible. We see prayer. When you come to King's Church, what do we do? You see the fact that we preach the Word of God. Why? Because when the people of God gather in the Bible, there's always the Word of God there. The call to worship and the benediction that bookend our service. Where do we get that from? The Bible. Right? In fact, the benediction is the oldest tradition in the church, dating all the way back to Moses and Aaron. We worship God according to what we see in the Bible, and we don't use in worship what's not in the Bible. It's one of the reasons why you don't see us painting pictures in worship services. Because the Bible doesn't say anything about that as an element of worship. It's one of the reasons why we don't light candles as an act of worship service. Because the Bible doesn't say anything about lighting candles as an act of worship. It's one of the reasons why we don't do interpretive dance. Or we don't walk a prayer labyrinth. Because the Bible doesn't say anything about worshiping God that way. Now, are any of those things wrong and sinful? No. They're not. They're not wrong and sinful at all. What's wrong, with, what's, what's wrong with, with taking a prayer walk and having some scripture passages around there? Is there anything wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with dancing? No. Is there, is there anything wrong with, with painting to the glory of God? It, 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 will, is it okay to light a candle and, and then to pray and think about the light? No. But does it belong in worship? No. Because God didn't tell us to. And that's it. That's the simple reason. He told us how he wants us to worship. In spirit and in truth. We want to believe the right things about God. We want to do what God has told us to do in worship. And we want to worship him with all that we are. And there's a balance there, right? Presbyterians, we're going to hammer that truth. Pentecostals, we're going to hammer that spirit, right? We need to be a people of balance. I love what John Piper says about this, the balance of spirit and truth in his book, Desiring God. He says, Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy in a church full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy 
and cultivates shallow people who refuse the disciple of discipleship of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. And that's what Jesus teaches us here. What we want for you, what I want for myself, is for you to be engaged mind, heart, and body in every element of worship that God has given us to His grace and glory so that we can profoundly experience God and glorify God together according to how He's told us to do it with a heart that's His and bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. That God, through the power of the Spirit, will allow us to comprehend the glory of God. That's what I pray for you and me every Sunday. Yes, what we do is simple, but it's really not because it's what God told us to do. And it will have a profound impact that will reverberate through our lives and out into eternity. And that's why we gather every Lord's Day to worship. That's why you wake up every morning and maybe you don't read, but you pray. Maybe you don't sing, rather, but you pray and you read and worship. That's why you gather together as families, and maybe you get a chance to sing. Maybe you don't, but you pray and you read the Word because you worship. And that will have a life-transformative effect on you and also the world around you. So the question that we're asking ourselves this morning is how should we worship? Well, praise the Lord. He's told us how. Praise God. He's told us how to worship. And he's given us the means to worship him in spirit and in truth. The beauty of this story is that the woman ends up worshiping Jesus in spirit and in truth. And we'll get a chance to talk about that next week. Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to that door because he had met Jesus Christ because he was finally worshiping him personally in spirit and in truth and wanted the rest of the world to experience the same thing. Friends, King's Church, beloved of God, how's your worship? The remainder of our time together, let's worship in spirit and in truth. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that there are times when it is not vague, because you want us to know exactly how to love and worship you. And we also thank you that there are times when it's not as specific as we'd like it to be, because in those times you want us to depend on you. But in terms of worship, you've told us what you want. So help us to do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.